0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And as you may know, we have a feature on the network called the New Books Network Seminar. This is where we put books that we believe will be of interest to everyone who listens to the NBN across all the channels. We have such an interview today, and it will be of interest to everyone because it's about everything. It's with Brian Green, of whom you may have heard. You might have seen him on television for example, in the miniseries Elegant Universe. And he talked to John Weston, one of our best interviewers, about his book, Until the End of Time, mind, matter, and our search for meaning in an evolving universe. It's a fantastic interview, and Brian really does present a theory of everything, both in the sense of the state of the academic union, that is what all the disciplines think about everything, but also covering such things as cosmology, evolution, consciousness, computation, art, religion, and how we should understand who we are as humans and our place in the universe. I found this mind-blowing, and I think you will too. So, without further ado, here's the interview.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Weston, and today I'll be talking to Brian Green about his 2020 book, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Brian Greene is a professor of mathematics and physics at Columbia University in the city of New York, where he is the director of the Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics, and co-founder and chair of the World Science Festival. He's well known for his TV miniseries about string theory and the nature of reality, one of which is The Elegant Universe, which ties in with his best-selling 1999 book of the same name. Today we'll be talking about his latest popular book, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe, published in 2020 by Penguin. So, welcome, Brian. Thanks for making the time to meet today. Oh, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I just wanted to start off with a couple of general questions about the book. Uh, this is a popular level book. Uh, It's got 170 pages of references and endnotes, so there's a lot of detail in there for the interested reader. It's about the cosmos and how we understand it. It gives the reader a theory of everything in the sense of both a state of the academic union, uh, covering cosmology, evolution, consciousness and computation, art and religion, as well as autobiographical vignettes, which you use to illustrate and personalise your explanations. Um, but it shows us a way of responding to or apprehending the subject matter as well. It doesn't just tell us what the universe is like. It talks about how to feel about it. Um, and, and a lot of the content is existentially challenging stuff. Um, so can you say a bit about how this book came about? Why why did you write it now? And what made you do it in this way?
2: Well, the ideas in this book I, I've been thinking about in one form or another for many decades And you're right, this is a different kind of book than my earlier ones, like The Elegant Universe that you mentioned. That book was really trying to give the general reader a sense of the cutting-edge scientific ideas that we now use to think about space and time and reality. But that book was not trying to reach further into the human experience. It was really just, here's the science in a way that I'm I'm trying to translate from the mathematics to ordinary language. But I have long felt that the real power of science is not just to give insight into the objective world. The real power of science is to give us a sense of how we fit into the grand cosmological unfolding and so I've always, for you know, for decades, I wanted to write that book, and I finally decided to do it, you know, a few years ago, and and it it, it felt to me, well, to me, it was a wondrous experience. I have to say, I I I, I thoroughly enjoyed the challenge of not just trying to communicate. The details of the science, but trying to communicate why the science matters, matters to us as human beings, self-reflective conscious beings trying to make sense of our lives on planet Earth. And so that's really what drove me forward.
1: Right. Uh, and you, you use the idea of, of nested stories as a way of reconciling diff- these very different areas of knowledge that you talk about. Uh, can you say a bit about that that nested approach? What does that mean? Absolutely. So
2: We as physicists tend to look at the world through a particular lens that we're trained to look at it through, through all of the schooling that we undertake and all the courses that we take in our own career as researchers. And that's a powerful story, but it's a limited story. It's a story that gives us the base workings of the fundamental ingredients and the fundamental forces by which those ingredients interact and develop. But as those ingredients come together into more complex structures, it's not that the laws of physics no longer apply, they thoroughly do. But new languages come into play, new organizational structures come into play. The chemist comes along and takes those particles and puts them together into atoms and molecules. The biologist comes along and has another layer of story upon that where the molecules are put together into cells and complex living organisms. The, The philosopher comes along, the psychologist comes along, the creative artist comes along and shows how these complex collections of particles into cells, into living beings can ask questions about the world and and think about what it's like to be a living being in the world and, and create things that help us understand where we fit in the larger cosmological order. And without all of those stories, without the physicist's story, without the philosopher's story, without the artist's story, you're telling an incomplete narrative. And so the goal of the book— was to show how these stories can naturally weave together into this, and use the word that, that I use, these, this nested structure in which they build on each other, you know, much like a, a bird builds a nest layer by layer. And when you have the complete structure, you have the capacity to engage with the world in a deeper
1: way. You talk about in the preface having an epiphany in in college and realizing that doing mathematics is more than just solving puzzles. You link that to finding a way towards a type of immortality, that you're uncovering stuff that's true forever once you find a mathematical truth. Um, Can you say a bit about that cosmic sort of life and death insight that you had? Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the the key
2: distinguishing features of our species is that we can think about ourselves, we can reflect on the past, we can imagine what it will be like in the future, and we are pattern-seeking beings, and one pattern that we recognized early on is that we're impermanent. We have finite lives. Members of the group that are here one day in the future, they're no longer with us. And this recognition of our own mortality is a a powerful driving force. You can see it across the ages. There has been a preponderance of attempts to try to create things that will be permanent in the sense that they will transcend their own impermanence. You know, from the pyramids to to creative works, to the idea of reincarnation, to the possibility of an afterlife. And so you see this right within our species from early on, this drive for things that will last. And I did have this epiphany in college when, look, from a young age, I loved mathematics. And it was just a big game. You solve this problem. Figure out the area of that shape. You know, solve this curious question that has to do with properties of numbers. And I loved it. But later on in college, I realized, well, actually, it's more to that. Because as a friend of mine really explained to me in this darkest of terms, once you prove a theorem, it's true forever. It will never not be true. And so there's something deeply spectacular about the mathematical undertaking, because right there, It gives us this window, this doorway, if you will, onto things that are permanent. And so that was a shift in my thinking away from math as a game to math as a means of touching the transcendent.
1: How do you get on personally day to day with with physicists and mathematicians who deny that, you know, who take a a purely positivistic view and and say, no, math is just puzzles and and quantum theory is just about making predictions about what we can measure. And that's the end of what, what we can say.
2: Well, I have a certain degree of of sympathy with that perspective, because in a day to day sense, that is what we do with mathematics that is what we do with schrodinger's equation from quantum mechanics in any practical sense we use that equation to make predictions about things in the outer world and yes it's certainly quite possible that the equations that we write down in physics they are provisional and it could be that if we had this conversation a hundred or a thousand years from now It could be that we're not talking about Schrodinger's equation any longer. Something has replaced it. So in that sense, it isn't permanent. But the pure mathematical sentences, like the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared is going to equal c squared forever, for every flat triangle that has a right angle. That's it. It will never not be true. Now, it could be that people will stop being interested in that equation, just like they may stop being interested in Schrodinger's equation. So in that sense, the permanence may not be something that people in the future consider valuable. But when you're talking pure mathematical theorems, if you've proven them correctly, that proof will stand the test of time.
1: Mm. When you said earlier that you you wanted to write a book like this for some time, did you feel like you had to to do the kind of um, more mainstream versions of of popularizations uh, before you could do something that attempted to bring in this longer view on what the meaning of it all is?
2: Not really. I didn't have some sort of grand plan that required that I go through particular steps before I sort of had the right, if you will, to talk about certain things. It certainly was a more difficult book to write, and I feel like I may not have had the maturity to write this book, say at whatever, 36 years old when I wrote my first book. I think that's what it was. Yeah, I think I was 36. You know, as as a young researcher who was doing physics equation 18 hours a day, that was the only thing that was really on my mind back in those days. And look, maybe it's just a byproduct of getting older. But now that I'm in my mid-50s, or beyond my mid-50s, heading towards 60, you do think about things differently. And I do spend my time somewhat differently than I did as a 36-year-old. Now, I do spend more time thinking about the deeper philosophical implications of the ideas that we develop in physics, and I do spend time thinking about radically different approaches, be it from literature or poetry or theology. I, I'm deeply enamored with the various pathways that members of our species have taken toward gaining the deeper insight into the meaning of their lives and the core of existence. I wasn't thinking those thoughts in any, in any real systematic way back in my 30s, so it wouldn't have been the right time for me, back then, to write a book like this.
1: Is that related to this thing you talk about in chapter one when you do calculations that are specifically about the end of the universe or, or, you know, deep time? When you make calculations and you arrive at a result like, ah, there's an ultimate time in the future when thermodynamics means it may not be possible to have thinking anymore. Thinking may end at that point. Is that the hollow dread you're talking about? Or was was there something else there? No, it's
2: really that. It it is the the insights that modern physics can provide by virtue of powerful theories that allow us to, in essence, use mathematics to turn the cosmic film forward in time and fast forward in time to, it's tentative, but to gain insights into the, what the world and the universe will be like in 10 to the 20 or 10 to the 40 or 10 to the 100 years from now. And when you recognize that the math seems to suggest you know, with some degree of certainty, but there's always room for these conclusions to be modified. But there's reason to believe that in the far future, there will not be the physical conditions necessary for life, necessary for any kind of conscious being. I mean, you can do this calculation that shows, look, thought itself produces waste heat, something called entropy in the second law of thermodynamics. Maybe we'll talk about it more later. And in the far future, the universe won't be able to absorb that waste heat. So any thinking being that thinks one more thought will fry in the entropic waste generated by the very process of thought itself. And you're like, wow, it's really going to end. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that it's really going to end, if you're thinking about the world and meaning in a particular point of view, you can say, what in the world is the point? how how where's where's why should one work hard where's the value where's the where's the meaning where's the purpose if everything that we do will disintegrate and be gone and yeah when I first began to think about that I did have a it was sort of a dark period for me luckily it didn't last all that long but it was definitely a dark period where I was having that kind of a a bleak perspective on what it was all about.
1: How did you get into your zen-like state of calm connection that you've um, approached more recently?
2: Well, strangely, there really was a moment. and Many people find equanimity in different ways over long stretches of time, different kinds of whatever meditative or philosophical or religious practice. For me, it happened one moment in a Starbucks, (laughs) which was sort of unexpected for me. I was just sitting there thinking about these things drinking my usual Earl Grey with soy milk, and then I just had this epiphany, I don't know how else to describe it, where it struck me that I was thinking about things in the wrong way, or at least in a way that wasn't useful, wasn't productive, wasn't fruitful. And it just struck me that what the calculations of the far future are really telling us is that we can't look outward to the universe to bestow upon us meaning and value and purpose looking outward is the absolutely wrong direction clearly that's the case when you realize that it's all going to disintegrate anyway and so where I was taken by that realization is a place that many people have gotten to on their own through different trajectories mindfulness teachers religious practice philosophical perspectives wise sages have for a long time said focus on the here and now Because that's the only place where meaning and value comes from. And indeed, I did have this shift. And it was a shift to a recognition that meaning and value are completely artificial. They are completely manufactured. And that language might suggest that I'm denigrating these concepts. But no, by, by manufactured and artificial, that elevates these concepts because they're not something that's imposed on us by some external force. These are ideas and notions and concepts that emerge from us. How much more noble for meaning and value to come from within for us to figure out what matters to us as opposed to try to figure out what matters to some external force or some external process or some external consideration. So in that brief moment in Starbucks,
1: I really had a shift to thinking about things that way. Do you think that that came from what you said? It was in the air. You, you were familiar with these ideas and that some some subconscious process just suddenly came into consciousness and you realized, actually, this applies to me. Was, or was there some deliberate kind of conscious process of reasoning that took you there?
2: Yeah, it was certainly ideas that were within me that had been swirling around, no doubt, for a long period of time. And they just needed to click into place. You know, they just needed to sort of have the the gears and the tumblers just all kind of align for the first time and with that have a radically, for me, radically different perspective, which really eliminated, in some sense, that hollow dread. It's not that I can't force myself to feel that hollow dread. I was curious, and on occasion I was wondering if I could get back to that place of darkness. And I can. And it's not... <laughs> It's not a fun thing to do, but I was just wondering if it was really gone. But um, I can mitigate it in a in and in for me a very very effective way by this shift in perspective, which is really how I now live my life. It's really how I think about things much more fully than I did before.
1: Is this something that you've shared socially with your with your colleagues? Um, this kind of change in perspective. Are you on your own in this realization, or are you, or is this something that your colleagues understand?
2: I, Over the course of my career, I've had very few conversations with colleagues in physics that had anything to do with anything but physics. We talk about string theory, relativity, quantum mechanics, but it's not as though the philosophical implications of these ideas are right with us in our day-to-day professional conversations. So I've had more conversations about these ideas with people from outside of physics, from the arts, from philosophy. I have some some very good philosopher friends who are interested in these kinds of explorations. I have some who come at it from a more theological point of view as well. But in terms of my physics colleagues, it's not the kind of conversation that we usually have.
1: Speaking of theology, you make it kind of clear that you don't want to um, come across as a new atheist you're not taking a hard line trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and by by unifying knowledge you're trying to do something that allows room for religion to have a place within the grand scheme of things can you say a bit more about how that works
2: yeah, I would say, even it's it's not just leaving room. I'd say that there is a vital place for religious theological perspectives in this overarching framework of human understanding and human knowledge. and And you're absolutely right. The new atheist group, some of them, i I speak to frequently, so good friends. We've done public events together. And and look, some of them would be all too happy if religion were to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I get where they're coming from. They are fully judging religion by whether it gives us insight into the objective qualities of the world that science is really good at providing insight into. And my view, as I explain in the book, is that is simply the wrong barometer to use for judging a religious perspective. Now, some folks from the religious side of this discussion would disagree with what I'm going to say right now, disagree vociferously. But my view is that religion, and I really like to use the word spirituality, it kind of captures the flavor more than religion, which brings to mind very specific religious practices and doctrines. But to me, the spiritual quest is something that's deeply complementary to the scientific quest. Scientific quest, absolutely. As a string theorist and someone who works in quantum mechanics and relativity, I'm interested in using math to describe the external world, the magnetic moment of the electron or the first few moments after the Big Bang. Absolutely. But that's only part of the story. As we were talking about before, this nested quality of knowledge has to embrace the inner journey that allows us to gain the deepest understanding of what it means to be a conscious, self-reflective being walking around on a rock that's orbiting this nondescript star in the Milky Way galaxy. And if you don't allow that part of the story, the inward exploration of what it means to be alive and thinking and feeling, if that's not part of your story, you're telling a very incomplete story. And for some, the religious experience that they have is something that is vital to going on that journey. And so to imagine ridding that as part of the human experience going forward, to me, would diminish the overarching narrative that we tell.
1: In chapter two, you talk about um, entropy, which you've already mentioned, and the idea that it increases over time, or it tends to increase over time, and that's a statistical law Uh, How does that make it different from other types of laws in physics?
2: The usual types of laws that we're familiar with are laws that are always true in the sense that they make a prediction based on what is happening today for what will be happening tomorrow, right? Newton's second law, we learn about it in school, you give me the speeds... Position of a particle, the forces acting on it, and the law will always tell you where the particle will be tomorrow. Quantum mechanics comes along and changes it a little bit by giving probabilistic predictions for what will happen tomorrow. But nevertheless, the quantum laws we believe are always true that's in that lawful sense. The second law of thermodynamics and entropy is somewhat different. The second law of thermodynamics is not a law. In the same sense, because it's only an overwhelming tendency for things to develop in a particular direction, the direction being from order toward disorder, from structure to disintegration. And that tendency is so overwhelming that in everyday life, we only ever see those kinds of evolutions. We see glasses falling to the floor and shattering I don't think any of us have ever seen the reverse, shards of glass coming coming back together and yielding a glass. You know, eggs crack. They don't uncrack. So there are a gazillion examples of the second law of thermodynamics going from order and structure to disorder and disintegration. But amazingly, the actual laws of motion allow shards of glass to come back together and yield a pristine object. They do allow the detritus of a smashed egg to jump off the floor and coalesce into a pristine egg. It's just highly unlikely. It takes extraordinary precise motions of the particles to reassemble into the more ordered form. The laws of physics do allow that to happen. It's just so rare and unlikely that we never witness it. So that's how it's different. It's a tendency, overwhelming as it may be, It is not a law in the sense that it rules out the progression from disorder to order. It's just very unlikely.
1: The statistical nature of it, you said it's different from the statistical nature of quantum mechanical laws.
2: It is quite different because the statistical nature of quantum mechanical laws are such that the probabilities that quantum mechanics tells us, those will always be obeyed. In other words, you'll never have a process that goes against the probabilistic description. Whereas in the second law of thermodynamics, even if the overwhelming probability is to go in one direction, it can be the case that you can violate that and you can go in the opposite direction. So when people say, for instance... That the second law of thermodynamics says that entropy increases or it doesn't decrease. But let me just say entropy increases. No, there are circumstances where entropy decreases. It's just we don't see them very often. So in that sense, we're contradicting the statement of the law that entropy always goes up because entropy can go down. There's no statement in quantum mechanics where quantum mechanics says, here's how things will evolve. And we look at the data and we're like, whoa, we're going against what the quantum law says. That never happens.
1: Entropy is called time's arrow. um, But why is entropy linked to time? You know, if you go from one state to another, why can't entropy increase if you go backwards from time one back to time zero? It absolutely could.
2: So set in the forward orientation, that would be a development where you are going in the usual orientation. So so it's not the statement that you can give um, an unequivocal arrow to time by using entropy. It's more the statement that when you look at the mathematical laws of physics, they don't distinguish between what we humans call forward in time and what we call the past, back in time, The laws have a parameter called T, and and whether T is bigger or smaller, the laws just shrug. They don't care. The laws say, hey, use, use me in any direction you want to predict about the future or to retrodict about the past. They're agnostic about past and future. So then you're left asking yourself, why then is human experience so lopsided in that we seem only to progress toward what we human beings call the future. And one possible answer to that is, we are in a world where the overwhelming tendency is for things to go from order to disorder. And that rush from order to disorder that is happening all around us is the temporal orientation that defines what we mean by future in time. But as we're saying, since, And as you said, as entropy can, in principle, go the reverse from the second law of thermodynamics, it's not a lawful description of the arrow of time. It's just an overwhelming tendency that allows us to define, in a very practical sense, what we mean by an arrow of time. Time, future, points toward ever greater disorder.
1: Right. So are you saying that our human sense that time has a, has a direction is somehow linked to our perceiving entropy and behaving as it does? It
2: could be that, but it can even be something else. It can be deeply related to that, the very process of forming a memory, right? How do we distinguish the future from the past? Well, we have memories of the past. Very few of us, if any, have memories of the future. And so therefore you say to yourself, okay, what's the process of memory formation like? Well, it's a physical process that happens inside this brain, inside of our heads. And therefore it is likely governed, overwhelmingly so, by the second law of thermodynamics. So the formation of a memory must in the end cause the entropy of the universe to go up a little bit. So it's not only that we witness around the world... Entropically increasing processes, you know, glasses shattering and so forth, the very process by which memories are formed is an entropic increasing process. And therefore, our brains, which is where we house this notion that there is a future and there is a past and there's a difference between them, the reason why we have that sensation may be because the very process of forming a memory is governed by the same kind of statistical likelihood that that process itself increases entropy.
1: Interesting idea. Related to asymmetry of time, um, you talk about CPT theorem, or you mentioned it briefly, and that could give us another arrow of time, or it's a, it's a process that is not symmetrical with respect to time. Um, is that related to the entropic arrow, or is it a completely separate thing? It's, it's completely separate. So so it is the case
2: that there are processes that when we look at them in the microscopic world of individual particles, seem to violate the temporal symmetry that I was mentioning before, that things can always unfold one way, they can always unfold in reverse. There's an exotic system of particles called the kaons. We don't really talk about these particles much in everyday life. They don't hang around very long. But they seem to violate that symmetry between forward and backward in time and in the language that you're using they violate cp so charge conjugation parity symmetry these are fundamental symmetries that we believe are at work in the microscopic and therefore in the macroscopic realm so you might say well could that little violation at the level of the chaos system somehow be the reason why we humans experience forward and backward in time so radically different and no one's been able to draw a link between the two know we don't we're not made of chaos inside of our heads we therefore don't really see the direct link between this very uh, precisely measured but esoteric quad of the microscopic world but who knows maybe in the future maybe that will be the answer and we'll just have to see the dots connected in a way that as of today we seem to be unable to
1: Mm -hmm. In Chapter 3, you talk about um, Alan H. Guth's work on cosmological inflation, and you say it involves a late-night calculational frenzy in December 1979. Uh, can you explain a bit about what he was working on there about cosmological inflation, but also how, how do you know about his working habits? Do you know him personally, or is that from a, a biography? Or
2: No, I do know him. I do know him personally. We've done a, a lot of events together as well as been at, you know, technical conferences together. And I did a television show on my second book called The Fabric of the Cosmos. And in one of the episodes, we actually recreated Alan Guth at his desk in December 1979. And so I'm kind of familiar with his own description of what happened, what he was working on. He was trying to answer a basic question, which is... Uh, in cosmology. How did the universe begin is the big question, but he was chipping away at that using various mathematical theories that people had developed to understand how space expands and things of that sort. And what he realized that night is that gravity can actually not only be attractive, it can be repulsive. That's unfamiliar to most people, although actually Einstein himself knew about this and many knew about it across the decades. But it was Alan who, when he rediscovered this feature of gravity, realized that it could explain how the Big Bang happened at all. Because the big puzzle is everything rushes away from everything else in the explosive growth during the Big Bang. But what outward force would push everything apart We usually think of gravity as just pulling inward, but when Alan realized that gravity could push outward, aha, he had a potential solution. If the repulsive version of gravity were manifest in the most minute fraction of the earliest moments of the universe, that repulsive push would have driven everything away. And his calculations showed that the repulsive push could be incredibly powerful. So powerful that it could take a universe which at that time would be a fraction of an atomic diameter in size and inflate it, blow it up to a size that would be far larger than today's observable universe. And this is where Alan discovered the so-called inflationary theory. And, And yes, when he finished his calculation in his notebook... He did a double box around it, which meant something very special in the particular lexicon that he uses, and he wrote it as spectacular discovery, spectacular realization.
1: The inflaton field needs to be uniform in order to produce inflation or repulsive gravity. Is it possible to explain that in a nutshell, or is it too technical to get into
2: It's a little bit technical, but I can say it this way. The gravity that we are all familiar with comes from clumpy objects like a planet or a star. And in Einstein's description of general relativity, when you have a a clump, it does indeed give rise to the usual attractive gravity that we all know about. But in Einstein's math, you can see quite directly that if you don't have a clump, if the mass or the energy is uniformly smeared out through space, a very different source of the gravity, the math shows quite clearly that the gravity will be of the repulsive variety. And that explains why we've never experienced the repulsive version. We only know about clumpy things, right? We know about this clumpy earth, and even the objects in this world that we interact with, they're all compact clumps. It's rare that we interact with something that is just uniformly dispersed smoothly throughout space. The image I like to use is kind of like, you know, a sauna. You go into a sauna and the steam is uniformly hazy throughout that room. But even that's clump because the, the sauna doesn't extend throughout all of space. It's just in that room, in that health club or whatever. So it's a clump of steam as opposed to uniformly spread steam. So we just don't experience uniformly spread out stuff. And that's why we've never experienced this.
1: That has to be the entire universe, does it? Or can it just be a locally?
2: Well, it has to be in a sufficiently um, broad region of space. So broad and size, of course, are relative. And what Alan Guth showed is you can have a little tiny speck of space. Could only be, you know, 10 to the minus 27 centimeters across. I mean, that's smaller than anything that we've ever directly encountered in everyday life. And if it was filled with the right amount of of this, as you called it, inflaton field. That's the source of the energy. And if it's uniformly spread through that tiny region, even that tiny speck will experience the repulsive push. So it all depends on the precise mathematical details of the amount of stuff and where it is and, and things of that sort. But yes, you can take a tiny region of space, fill it with what amounts to a couple ounces of this uniform energy, and that can blow up to as large as the observable universe, and that couple of ounces of energy gets magnified through that expansion to a degree that it can be enough energy to give the mass for all stars, all planets, and everything in the cosmos. So Alan, Alan Guth likes to call this the ultimate free lunch. You just have a couple of ounces of this inflaton field in a tiny, tiny region of space, and you get everything. You seem to get much more than you started with, and that's an interesting... Question to pursue, we understand fairly well where the extra energy, if you will, comes from. But that's all you need to create a universe.
1: Hmm. Could that be happening in our midst, uh, within our universe? And if it did, with the space that was created or expanded be continuous with the space that we're in, or would it be separate somehow?
2: Yeah. So so people have spent a lot of time thinking about that because once you realize that maybe it doesn't take all that much to create a new universe, you begin to wonder, hey can I create a new universe in the laboratory right now? And so there was a, a whole lot of research that happened. I, it was mostly in the 80s. Maybe people still think about it some. Um, it turns out to be more difficult than you think to create a universe in the laboratory. And if you did, the math shows that it would swell in a direction that's oblique, to all directions that we know about. Mm. So this new universe that you create would kind of be a bubble that would bubble off of our universe, kind of like, you know, when you're cooking pizza in the oven, you can get little pockets of air that form little bubbles. So if our universe is like the flat part of the pizza, these little bubbles would sort of come up and they'd actually even detach and they'd float off into a larger cosmological environment, creating their own universe. So that's one perspective on the possible creation of other universes, but it's it's not as easy as you might think, or maybe you wouldn't think it'd be easy at all.
1: Well, you lulled me into a false sense of... Yes,
2: I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't... See, the thing is, you don't need a lot of stuff, yeah. but creating the conditions under which that stuff will actually yield a new universe, that's tough.
1: Hmm. Um, just on a personal note with that as well, um, it's interesting to hear that you've kind of recreated somebody's late night work as as a kind of um, as a vignette to explain the drama of of what it's like to do this work you mentioned yourself being literally kept awake for many a night Um, so I just wanted to ask you to talk about the kind of obsessive nature of this kind of work and how do you balance it with or how have you in the past balanced it with other things in your life Uh, and do you think that that gets easier over time or, or is it the same as ever
2: well, it is. Being a physicist, I think, is an obsessive undertaking. And I remember I even had a conversation with the physicist Howard Georgia, who was a Harvard physicist who did a lot of important work on particle physics. I remember I took him to lunch. Students were allowed to take faculty to the lunch. I took him to lunch and we we're talking about things. And I was like, you know, how, how much do you think about physics like during the day, during the night? And he just sort of paused and looked at me he says i am only ever thinking about physics and i was like wow yeah and and it it inspired me so there was a long period of time where i only thought about physics and it's absolutely the case these problems that we undertake can be mathematically difficult technically challenging and when you get stuck you can't leave off it's not like 5 p.m. you you head home and you do something else you're you're so Immersed in trying to resolve the challenges that are in front of you that you just never stop thinking about it. And, yeah, it can make life hard for those who are around you. You know, I remember my wife uh, early on. She got used to this way of being. You know, she'd be telling me things and she'd be like, you're not listening at all to what I'm saying. I was like, no, I'm sorry, I'm I'm totally not, you know. Uh, but, um, again, sort of, as we discussed earlier on, I sometimes get into that state now, but I would by no means say that I am in that state all the time any longer because life is rich. And, and I sort of used to think that the issues and challenges and opportunities of everyday life, I used to always think about them as, oh, those are just the details Who wants to get sidetracked on the details? I want to think about the big things, origin of the universe and things like that. And, you know, you get a little bit old, you have kids, you know, I've got two kids now and, and, um, you begin to recognize, wow, the day-to-day stuff, that's actually where a lot of life really happens. So I have a more balanced existence than I once did, but I also don't produce as many papers (laughs) as I once did, you know, so it kind of, it, it goes all, all directions,
1: does it make you want to do popularizations more or less? Um, if if you find that your production of papers is um...
2: well, you know, I have to say that when I first when I wrote my first book, you know, back in in nineteen ninety nine or so, I had a very specific way of going about it, which is I I would never allow the writing of the book to intrude. On a certain f- number of hours that I was going to put into the research, and typically, you know, as I was saying, you can't do physics nine to five in any in any fundamental way. But I was able to really structure my thinking that I would try to do the bulk of my research during the day in the office, and I would do the physics popularization at night. and And for a period of time, that that really worked. So writing the Elegant Universe did not cut in in any significant way on productivity i mean a little bit but it was at the edges but when you grow up and you have a family and you have kids you don't have evenings any longer at least i don't that's right yeah. and and because of that it became more difficult to balance doing physics research and doing popularizations and it would be a source of tension for me for many years it was a source of tension so i was trying to balance between the two Finally, I just came to a place where I said, you know what, I'm not going to judge what I do in a given day any longer. If what I did felt valuable, it felt gratifying, I enjoyed it, and there's going to be hopefully some downstream utility, either in a physics paper or a new book for the general public or a television show, so be it. And I kind of just put the whole judgment thing to the side. And I said, I'm just going to live and f- do what feels right at the moment. And that's pretty much how I deal with things now.
1: You mentioned pizza a minute ago. There's a story, you use pizza to explain something about about how inflation gets started, about some kind of spark that's necessary as it were. Uh, can you talk about that briefly and also about the actual incident with the oven? Was that a real incident?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a real incident. Yeah, yeah. In fact, all the all the personal incidents in the book are, are, are absolutely real and, and you actually hit the nail on the head early on I mean the reason I include them is you know I, I'm not trying to do some sort of Oprah like discussion of you know, my deep personal feelings about things not that that's a bad thing to do it's a good thing to do but there you know if you're telling a story about the unfolding of the cosmos and you're making the point that you need many descriptions to give the full account among those descriptions of course is the deeply personal human account so how sad would it have been to write a book of that sort and not to include the one story that i have access to that others don't which is my own personal narrative so i i I don't overdo it in the book, but at moments, I, I think it's useful to have the, the personal reflection on these things. And yeah, so that particular incident that you're mentioning, I, I was in fourth grade. I came home from school, was hungry, put some pizza that was left over. I put it in the oven. I turned on the gas, but I'd forgotten to light the oven. In those days, you had to light the oven. There wasn't a built-in pilot light, at least not in our oven, that we, our modest one that we had in the kitchen. Unfortunately, I decided or re- realized I needed to light the oven after the gas had been accumulating for like 10 minutes inside of it. So I lit the oven and it exploded in my face. And, you know, there were, you know, was a bit of an investigation afterward, you know, why I was at home alone and cooking and so forth. And they came to the conclusion that had I waited another minute or two, I'd be dead, the amount of okay. gas that would have... you know, So I was sort of on on the edge right there. You know, I burned my face badly and things of that sort. But the point I make in the book... Is that that process of the exploding oven absolutely was a drive toward greater disorder, greater <laughs> entropy, right? You had an ordered kitchen before and you had an exploded <laughs> kitchen afterward. And you note though that it took my striking the match to allow the progression to higher entropy to take place. Mm-hmm. The methane, the natural gas would accumulate in the oven and would just commingle with the oxygen unless you light it. And that requires that spark. So it's just to say that the second law of thermodynamics can hit roadblocks. Mm. And it will only overcome those roadblocks and realize the higher entropy potential if there's a catalyst. And that happens over and over again throughout the universe. You're right, you know, inflationary cosmology, you need a catalyst, you need this this entropy to fill that region of space in this uniform manner in order that the explosive growth can take place. And the example that I give in the book is when you're also looking at the creation of more complex molecular species, the blending together of simple atoms into complex ones, oftentimes you do need a catalyst. You know, you need a version of my fourth grade self striking a match, Mm. And the fact that you need a catalyst is very important because if it were the case that the universe just immediately went to higher entropy, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. We, in some sense, are these way stations, these semi-stable way stations we can hang around for like a century But we are a conduit through which the universe ultimately does achieve a higher entropy state. What we do as human beings, we take in ordered material from the environment, ordered food structures. I'm vegetarian, so I only eat vegetables and things of that sort. Our bodies burn those food sorts in order to create energy that we use to keep our order high, to keep our entropy low, and then we release waste heat to the environment. So we are the sources of entropy for the outer world in order that we can keep our entropy low. And and thankfully, the universe allows such structures to exist for a period of time. Thankfully, the universe doesn't just say, hey, I can see a higher entropy state. Let me just go to it immediately. Because if it did that, there'd be no stars, no planets, no people, because the particles would just disperse through the darkness as that would be the higher entropy state that those particles could access.
1: Mm. You you said that you you didn't put much of these kind of little details about your biography in there. And I've seen your programs and read your other books as well. So I I did kind of want more of that. So it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you to ask you for a bit more. But I guess you have to really judge um, what's the right amount of that to put in a book of this type. Um,
2: well it's interesting I just quickly jump in on that you know I had a number of folks reading early drafts as one does and a lot of the early readers were saying just what you said they were like every time we get to the personal stuff I just want I really it really grounds it it makes it something that feel I can feel you in the personal stuff and and that to me was was gratifying so I did include more based upon some of those um, comments. But at the same time, I didn't want to overshadow the larger cosmological story, which is what the book is ultimately about. Yeah.
1: You talk about conflicting or competing interpretations of quantum mechanics um, in relation to uncertainty. Um, that's, that's hard for people to understand because it's so different from our everyday experience. And there are lots of ways to interpret it. The two that you mention in particular are the idea that uncertainty could be um, a feature of just how we measure things at that scale, um, or it could actually be something in, in reality, in the particles, that's actually uh, irreducible.
2: Sure. Sure. And this is um, a controversial subject. And the vast majority of physicists that you will speak to will say what I said in earlier books of mine and and certainly it's the party line that I have described for, for decades, which is the uncertainty of quantum mechanics is a fundamental uncertainty according to this perspective. So Heisenberg came along in 1927 and showed us that there are qualities of the world that you can't know at the same time. You can't know the position and the speed of a particle simultaneously is the canonical one that people focus upon. In fact, the better you know where a particle is, the less you know about its speed, the the more you know about its speed, the less you know about its position. And so people began to wonder, even in those early days, well, wait, Is that a limitation on our measurements about the world, or is it a limitation on the actual qualities that exist in the world? And the party line for for many decades was the latter, that a particle like an electron simply cannot have a definite position and a definite speed at the same time. That old Newtonian idea that you've got particles with positions and speeds is simply ruled out by the quantum revolution. And most physicists who you talk to today would still say that. What they're not taking into account is that there are other approaches to quantum mechanics, and the one that I have in mind, it's fairly esoteric by the standards that we're talking about. It's called the de Broglie-Bohm theory of quantum mechanics. It makes exactly the same predictions as standard quantum mechanics, so you can't distinguish between the two of them through conventional observations but in this approach particles actually do have speeds and positions at the same time it's just that the theory fundamentally shows that you can't ever get at those qualities they're there they exist but you can't get at them now some physicists would say well come on if you can't get at them if you can't measure them then they don't exist by definition the only things that exist are the things that we can measure, period, end of story. That's what, say, Niels Bohr would have said, I believe. But when you study this Bohm De Broglie theory, you realize uh, it's pretty convincing in at least giving an existence proof that particles having definite positions and speeds is allowed by the quantum formalism, and some sense can really be made of the statement. That you can't get at these qualities even though they are there. And I consider that to be not philosophy. I consider that to be a distinct way of looking at reality. Because part of what reality is, you have to tell me what things are real. Not necessarily things that you can measure, but tell me what things are real. The ontology, what's actually out there. And according to this approach to quantum mechanics, positions and speeds are real. They are out there even though we can't get at them.
1: And what makes you like that interpret approach? Or how, how, how do you justify that one over the other ones if there's no, no experiment you can do to distinguish between them? Well, I would say this.
2: Quantum mechanics forces us to give up long-cherished ideas about the world. Newton came along and gave us his beautiful equations where you tell me how things are today, I predict how they will be tomorrow. We had to give that up in favor of only predicting the probability of how things will be tomorrow. That's a, that's a radical shift, but let's, let's give it up because that's what quantum mechanics seems to require. The conventional approach to quantum mechanics requires that we give up something else on top of that. We have to give up particles having positions and speeds. This other approach doesn't require that we give up the conventional notion of positions and speed. So I would say, look, when a radical theory comes along, if there's a flavor of it that allows you to hold on to certain cherished qualities, even though you have to give up others, versus a second version of that theory that requires you give up even more cherished qualities about the world, it seems to me you would favor the one that doesn't require that you give up things unnecessarily. And that's what this bohm broglie theory shows. You don't have to give up positions and speeds. Now look, there are other features of the theory that physicists will talk to. Uh, they'll say that it's, you know, it's got nonlinear equations. They'll say that it's highly non-local. I don't know if you want to go down any of these trajectories. So I'd say there are criticisms that people could mount, but that's now open for discussion. It's a matter of sort of picking your poison. Which of the things you want to give up? Which qualities are you unwilling to allow? But that's now a discussion and a debate. That's not something which is set in stone by the quantum mathematics itself.
1: You talk in one of the, the end notes to that chapter about fine-tuning physical laws, which I think is related in some way because you talk about um, it being better to work from first principles, which seems, seems to make sense. Then you don't have to make the stipulations. But you say that even to work from first principles is a stipulation, a stipulation about how to be rational or something. Uh, so do you need to worry about that? Is that part of the same conversation as, as what we were just talking about? You know, what's your poison? Choose, choose the way that feels best.
2: I, I think if you follow the, the conversation about picking your poison to its logical conclusion, you run right into the questions that you are asking. You have to ask yourself, what is important in formulating an argument about how the world works? What are the criteria that we're going to put forward in order to judge one theory over another? Occam's razor is a very powerful distinguishing tool. But we've also recognized that you can look at one and the same thing from multiple perspectives. And from one perspective, Occam seems to be violated. And from the other perspective, he's not. So even how to apply, how to slice with Occam's razor can be subtle. And so, so yes, in, in the book and as a physicist, I do take a particular view on the kinds of theories that are more convincing than others. And I'm more convinced by theories that, don't have a great deal of unnecessary looking complexity, at least in the mathematical formulation in which it's presented. I'm more convinced by theories that don't have to take as much input from the external world. Rather, they are so powerful intrinsically that they can describe a broad range of physical phenomenon without having to have, say, many different dials tuned and different qualities very uh, carefully inserted into the theory. We, we are suspect of theories that if you sort of touch one little piece of it, the whole house of cards collapses. We like theories that are robust in the sense that, you know, you can push the theory this way or that, which means you can perform mathematical manipulations on it, and it's not so highly tuned that it breaks if you fiddle with it at all those are the kinds of theories that we find more convincing
1: in chapter four you you talk about slightly more formal terms about this nested stories idea and you talk about nested naturalism you you kind of reluctantly call it that in in one of the endnotes, and you also start talking about ken wilson's idea of the renormalization group can you say a bit about what that renormalization group does for you in this picture
2: Yeah, so Ken Wilson, was uh, he's, he's passed away, but Ken Wilson, a Nobel laureate in physics, developed a mathematical technique allowing us to, in essence, take a theory that is focused on one particular scale of the universe. This is typically done in the microscopic realm. And he set up a mathematical machine that allows you to take that description that might be discussing things way, way down at the microscopic level And run that theory through this machine, which allows the description now to apply to a larger scale. Or run it through the machine and it will apply to a larger scale still. So, right there, you sort of have nested stories coming out of this mathematical machinery that Ken Wilson developed. Start with a theory that's way down there in the total microscopic realm, put it through the machinery, through the machinery, and get a theory that's on a higher level of description. Put it through the machinery again and get a description at a higher level still. Now this is all highly tailored to quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, so it's not as though we can run this through a machine and get to a description of like conscious experience. So don't, don't get me wrong, it's highly limited in its applicability, but it is a very precise way of changing the scale at which a given theory applies.
1: Um, is it is it stipulative or arbitrary to privilege these rational laws of thought? I mean, rationalism in itself, you know, you, you chose in the book, I think, not to really go too deeply philosophical in the sense of um how do we argue for like the law of the excluded middle you know you didn't you didn't go into axiomatic things it, it, it was more about existential considerations when you went philosophical did you just choose i have to stop somewhere this book is for a popular audience and if i devote a whole chapter to <laughs> technical philosophical foundations that might actually lose the audience a bit
2: no that was never a thought the thought was frankly i want to write about things that are deeply moving to me and deeply exciting to me because I can write about them with passion. And I think if you write about things with passion, even if they're challenging, people will come along with you on that journey. If if you are sensitive to where they're coming from and you have a sense of guidance that you want to hold everyone's hands as, as best as you can to get over the difficult material that this kind of journey requires so yes I do feel that the book has implicit assumptions as to how you go about trying to understand the world Uh, rational logical thinking is powerful when you're talking about understanding the world at the level of molecules and atoms and particles and as I describe in the book as you go up in scales and are now focusing more on human level experience, then the emotional side of things becomes predominant and the rational side doesn't drop away. But it now needs to have a conversation, a deep conversation with the emotional side of things in order that the story is, is as complete as it can be.
1: In chapter four, you go from you go from big bang through the formation of chemical elements to the molecular basis of life. The passage on the electron transport chain, uh, which is the energy exchange mechanism of all living things, is especially engaging, a striking bit of writing, and um, it illustrates the kind of shifts in worldview required to understand the world around us naturalistically. Um, we have a bodily or intuitive feeling for Newtonian mechanics, but we, we can only apprehend these invisible realms, the quantum scale and evolutionary time cosmic time we can only understand this from an intellectual level we can't really get a feel for them so can you say something about what makes you want to devote time to popularizing that um those those different worldviews or those different perspectives and how did you learn to write and speak about things in a way that has been so successful
2: well i'm 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 deeply moved when people are moved by scientific ideas And I've seen this with kids that I've had conversations with around the country who feel that science is boring and something they don't want to engage with. And, you know, you tell them about black holes and the Big Bang and you see a shift in their view of science. And to me, as a scientist, I I get uh, a deep gratification out of people just saying, I got it, I understand it and and it has enriched my world even a little bit so that's really where the motivation comes from in general for this book in particular i really hoped and hope that people who read the book will leave with a different sense of how they fit in and when you can see the human life as nothing but the molecular processes that take place within our cells which themselves emerge from the big bang over the cross of eons of development when you can see your life as part of this continuum that reaches back to the big bang at least to me it gives a deep sense of connection to the wider cosmos that really can change your sense of who you are and so that that really was the the drive for trying to communicate these ideas in, in terms of my own approach and style you know um i i i i feel I write as I speak. And, and so I find that when I'm in a spontaneous conversation, as we are in right now, I'm speaking, of course, from my head, but it's more than that. In a conversation like this, it gets me excited. I feel like I'm speaking from the heart. And I don't mean in some gooey sense. I just really mean that I'm speaking about something I deeply care about. And, and that makes it that makes it organic. It makes it true. At least it makes it true for me. And I think that people can feel when you're speaking from a place of truth and passion. And that to me is the core of the the ability to get complex ideas across in a way that is not only accessible, but people feel that it matters. And that's the essence. You need people to feel that these ideas matter because they really
1: do. Are you worried that you've bitten off more than you can chew in the book? Because uh, the thing that you said about your colleagues not really talking about this kind of stuff—you know—you're you're kind of setting yourself apart. And you mention doddering researchers in the twilight of their careers turning to fringe topics. I, I don't think you're including yourself in that category, but you're kind of mentioned that territory as being perhaps problematic.
2: Yeah. So that 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 comment in particular was meant to be describing. The dominant view that science has, especially of physicists who later in their life turn to the meaning of quantum mechanics or the nature of consciousness, and the mainstream community looks at them and kind of gives a shrug of the shoulders, or rolling of the eyes, and oh yeah, they're over the hill, therefore they're taking on those kinds of philosophical questions. And that's not my view. And it's never been my view. Look, there are folks who have achieved all they're going to achieve and move on to these kinds of questions later in their career. Fine. But to have physicists really think deeply about quantum mechanics, we should be doing that all the time. To have researchers who, say, come at consciousness from a different perspective than the neuroscientists or the philosophers or the psychologists – That's a great thing. And that's where you get fruitful cross disciplinary advances that neither field would be able to accomplish on their own. So, in terms of biting off too much, I don't think so. Everything that I talk about in the book, whether it's the physics or whether it's the urge to tell stories or the capacity of the species to make up myths and to codify those in religion and to have various ways of self-expression from music to dance to theater to art. Yes, it's a broad sweep of topics, but I approach each one of them from my own expertise. I never approach any of these topics as they would be approached by someone who is expert in those fields. And that's what gives a unifying perspective on this broad range of human experience. It's seen through the lens of a physicist who's deeply respectful of other disciplines and has a deep urge to see how they all blend together into the fullest understanding that we can acquire of what it means to be a human being.
1: You said that the passion, the interest uh, informs how you communicate and, and and enables you to communicate well. But that's not enough. It's kind of necessary, maybe, but not sufficient to then do it. And I think that, um, I mean, you, you mentioned by name or at least one, one teacher by name you mentioned. And you also talk about the role of a, of a grad student in, in opening your eyes to mathematics. So I get the feeling that you've, that you were impressed by teachers at, a, at a different stages in your early formative years and that that has maybe made you want to do the same kind of thing. Is that the case? Oh, without a doubt.
2: You know, I, I, Look back on my life, and I think as many people do, and you see pivotal individuals who, without even knowing perhaps the impact that they were having, have shaped your life. And so I opened the book, in fact, with a quote from one such individual, a fellow named Neil Bellinson, who I met when I was in junior high school. He was a math graduate student at Columbia, and I had exhausted what my school offered in mathematics, so a teacher gave me a note and said, go to Columbia University and give this to somebody. You know, maybe somebody will teach. So I kind of went up there with my sister. We just knocked on random doors, kept giving this note to people. Most people gave it back to me. But this one guy took the note and read and said, I didn't even know what the note said at the time. But he said, "Yes, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to teach you. And wow. so he took me on for free. Like, we didn't have any money. And I met with him three, four times a week over summer. I met with him on Saturdays throughout the year. I'd go up to his house and he'd teach me math. For nothing, for just the joy of having a young kid that was excited to learn about these ideas. And that had a profound impact on me. And so, absolutely, to try to give back and to have that kind of profound impact on the next generation, yeah, it motivates the books that I write and and the TV shows. We we formed this thing called the World Science Festival, where we create public events that are meant to provide those aha moments for kids and adults, novice and enthusiasts, because as a means of trying to examine who we are, the tools of science are absolutely powerful, and when those powerful tools are blended, not not at arm's length with the humanities, but blended with a humanistic description and perspective, then you really are in a very special place, a place where People can come out the other end thinking about themselves in a richer way.
1: In chapter five, you get onto some really existentially difficult territory where you where you talk about free will, and you basically deny the existence of free will, um, which I guess is not very controversial among scientists, among physicists, maybe. Um, but can you say a bit about that? Is free will just the sensation of free will? Is that, is that what you're saying?
2: That's part of what I'm saying, absolutely. So we all sense that we have freedom of will. We sense that we make decisions, that that the choices we make are freely articulated within ourselves. And that sense is real. Obviously, I feel it and you feel it, as does everybody else. But I also think that it's illusory in the sense that you and I and everybody else, we are collections of particles. I'm going to now use the physicist story, the reductionist account where we are collections of particles governed by physical law. And every decision we make and every choice we make amounts to our particles moving one way or another in our brains and in our bodies. And the motion of those particles is fully governed by the insensate laws of physics. There is no opportunity for any of us to end run the mathematical laws. It's not like the mathematical laws say, okay, particles... Move according to these laws until this moment and then hang on, wait for Brian to make a decision. Yeah, just hang around. Wait for him. Yeah, he hasn't made the Okay, now he made a decision and you can carry out the marching orders that he just provided you. It doesn't work that way. The particles march according to the marching laws of quantum physics and that's it. And because of that, there's no opportunity for us to have the
1: role that we
2: think that we do.
1: Should there be practical consequences of that, Then, I mean, how does that work day to day, that realization? Or is it something that you just reflect on from time to time? And how do we absorb that? Well, I'd say two
2: things. First is I, as I describe in the book, I don't stop there. There is a notion of freedom that I think we should all focus attention on, which is not the freedom from the tyranny of mathematical laws. You can't break that tyranny you don't have that freedom but we do have a freedom that distinguishes us from inanimate objects in the world around us even other animate objects in the world around us you know if you take a rock it doesn't do very much no matter the stimulus that you apply to the rock it pretty much just sits there maybe it'll move if you toss it but that's it why The internal organization of the particles inside the rock, very, very rudimentary. Our internal organization of our particles, governed by the same laws as those of the rock, but our particles are highly ordered. We are the product of such a long stretch of evolutionary development that we can respond to the environment in a much much wider array of behaviors. We don't pick those behaviors, but we can execute a much wider range of behaviors than the rock. And so when I do things, right, if I'm writing a book or if I'm solving a math problem or if I'm talking to you right now, I say to myself, how amazing that I've got the freedom from the constrained behavior that the rock is limited to. I'm so much more free in the kinds of behaviors that I'm able to execute. I'm not freely choosing those behaviors, but I can still marvel at the range of behaviors That I have access to. So that's this freedom of a different sort. It's not freedom from the control of math. It's freedom from the limited behavioral repertoire of the inanimate world. And to me, that's enough. I don't need any greater freedom than that. That kind of freedom fills me with a certain kind of joy that I don't miss the freedom that we usually have in our mind, that we are the ultimate authors of our actions, that we are the place where our choices originate. Our choices and our actions are set by the motion of particles. Those particles were moving well before they coalesced into our bodies, and they were governed by mathematical law then, and they're governed by mathematical law now. So that's number one. There's a different kind of freedom worthy of attention. Practical consequence number two has to do with punishment and responsibility. You can say, well, look, if we don't have free will, then I'm not responsible for anything at all, and therefore I can do whatever I want. Absolutely not. Your, your particles, if they carry out some action, you are responsible for the action of your particles. You are part of the causal chain that results in your particles committing some crime or undertaking some wondrous activity, And therefore, your particles do bear the responsibility for whatever action follows from the motion of those particles. Now, okay, good, you can say I'm responsible, but should I be punished if my particles do something bad? And the answer is, yeah, you should be punished if by punishing you, there can be positive consequences to other collections of particles, other people, that observe the impact on you of the behavior that you undertook. You see, absence of free will is not absence of learning. You can still learn. Like my Roomba, as it goes around my house, it learns where the furniture is, even though it doesn't have any free will. Inanimate collections of particles can learn, even though they don't have free will. Animate collections of particles can learn, even though they do not have free will. So I think it changes your view on why we punish. Punish should not be for retribution. Punishment should only be for the learning, the consequence in the sense of learning either for that individual or for others by virtue of the punishment that we dole out. So yeah, I think that is a practical consequence.
1: Do you think that the judicial system needs to take account of that then? I mean, do you think that people generally should be shifting their view of what responsibility means in order to still place blame at the right place, but to sort of separate it from the feeling of self that we have in a way? Without a doubt. And
2: it gives you greater compassion for people that commit crimes. It doesn't make you soft on them. You should apply harsh punishment if the data shows that that punishment dissuades them or others from carrying out those behaviors in the future. Now, the flip side is, too, we can look at our accomplishments in a different light. You know, if I'm doing something and I'm pleased with the result, on occasion, I actually say to myself, hey, particles, good job. I'm, I, I, I'm so fortunate that the particles governed by mathematical law just happen to undertake this action and I'm pleased with that result. So in a sense, I kind of take myself out of it a little bit because I just feel as though I am the medium, the conduit through which this or that behavior happens, whether it's good or bad. And again, if you do something wrong... Again, you can say the same thing, oh, darn, isn't it awful that my particles governed by mathematical laws did that? And therefore, isn't it unfortunate that I have to suffer the consequences for what my particles did? And, and yes, it's a different view. In a way, it doesn't change very much, except it does potentially change your view of when punishment should be applied. But in terms of going about your day-to-day life, I think it has less impact than you might think to claim that we don't have free will.
1: That argument about distinguish between the sensation of of feeling like we're in control of what's going on versus what physics allows to be possible. You talk about Graciano's idea of the mind modeling things and that this could fall out of that conception of what the mind does.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the, the hard so-called hard problem of consciousness is the issue that you are referring to, which is, look, how can it be? That collections of particles, which themselves don't seem to have any intrinsic conscious quality, how could it be the collections of mindless, thoughtless, emotionless particles when you swarm them together in the right way inside of this three-pound gloppy gray structure inside of our heads? How could it be that they turn the lights on, that they yield The inner sensation of conscious awareness, conscious reflection, emotion, how could that be generated from particles that don't seem to have those qualities? Now, some respond to that hard problem by saying, well, how do you know electrons don't have some kind of conscious quality? That takes you in one direction. People like David Chalmers and others have developed these ideas. I consider them provocative but unconvincing. I don't think that electrons have sort of a proto-conscious quality. It just doesn't resonate with me. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just one that doesn't really convince me. But Michael Graziano from Princeton has a different approach, and people have developed various flavors of this. He says, look, when we look out in the world, we build mental models of the world in order that we can survive And those mental models are highly simplified because if you took in the billowing amount of detail of anything in the environment, you'd be overwhelmed by the details. Even a tree, if your brain took in every corrugated fold of the bark and the location of every leaf. Holy smokes, you'd be overwhelmed by the detail. You wouldn't be able to move. So we build these rough and ready mental models of the environment, allowing us to figure out where it's safe to walk, where we might get food, how to get the next meal, and so forth. He goes further and says, well, look, we also apply these schematic models to our own awareness. So when we think about our own awareness of the world, we sketch it in a way that allows us to keep track of our attention. Now, that's a very interesting idea because the mystery of consciousness is that our conscious self seemed to float unmoored in our mind, untethered from the physical. That had led people like Descartes to imagine it really wasn't physical. But this idea of Graziano and others suggests, hey, the only reason that our experience inside our heads feels like it's floating, feels like it's untethered, is because we're sketching a model of our attention and awareness, which leaves out all of the underlying physical details. And if you leave out the physical details that underlie the experience, of course the experience is going to feel like it's untethered from the physical, but that's important for evolutionary purposes so that we don't get overwhelmed by all those details. So to me, the analogy that I like to use is, you know, if we, for instance, had a mental model of our body, that left out our arms and only focus, say, on our hands and the rest of our bodies, but without the intermediary of our arms, it would seem as though our hands were floating, unmoored, untethered from the rest of our bodies. But that's only because our model left out our arms, the connection. Perhaps our mental model of our own awareness is leaving out the analogous connection that links the experience inside of our heads with the physical processes within our body that yields those experiences and that to me at least takes you part way toward an understanding of why it's so hard to understand conscious awareness and perhaps what is required to understand the qualities of experience
1: you're talking about qualia as well so is there some irreducible extra constituent that we're not yet able to describe well enough to to fill in that that gap
2: that 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 is the question and my suspicion and again nobody knows the answer to that question my suspicion is that you don't need anything else at all all you need are the fundamental laws whatever they may be we perhaps have some of them now perhaps we do not in the future those laws may be different and all you need are the fundamental constituents we may have identified them by today maybe we have not but the bottom line is There is fundamental stuff governed by fundamental laws, and when that stuff is arranged in the right manner, it can yield conscious reflection, conscious awareness. You don't need anything else on top of it. That's my view. It's an assumption. Now, look, in the book, I describe a whole variety of other perspectives. Those who think that there's consciousness right in at the level of particles, those who think that consciousness may be this other substance that's floating out there in the world and we just sort of tap into it. So there are many, many views on this, but the only one that I as a physicist and as someone who thinks deeply about what it means to be human and how do you put those together, the only view that seems sensible to me is that it's particles and laws, highly organized And when they're organized the right way, you can have the experiences that we do.
1: In chapter six, you talk about the function of language and and how language might have originally evolved. And you distinguish yourself from Chomsky's point of view. You talk about um, language evolving for a communicative purpose, not just as a tool for thought but the example you give is is for being able to generate empathy and to perform a social function in a much more efficient way than picking fleas off each other might have done in our you know earlier incarnations and you give an example really very moving example taking from the the epic of gilgamesh there's an image of one of the characters pacing up and down trying to come to terms with the death of his friend and you you quite quickly move into being autobiographical from that point and talk about your pacing up and down trying to come to terms with the death of your father and that made it extremely poignant uh, and it made the point very powerfully so you said earlier you know you, you were quite careful about how much autobiographical stuff to put in here this felt very very intensely personal and i was quite amazed that you had chosen to illustrate this i mean it was completely relevant it wasn't frivolous in any way but it was so seemed so personal can you just say about how you you know was it a difficult decision to include that it was not a difficult
2: decision to include it it was however something that i didn't want to dwell on beyond the utility it had for illustrating the the idea in as As emotionally impactful way as it could. So, the description of the biographical side that you mentioned, I think it amounts to two sentences, you know. Um, And in those two sentences, I basically am trying to illustrate how the kinds of stories that we used language to tell 5,000 years ago we can immediately grasp the stories that our forebears were telling, even though the lives that we live today are so radically different from the lives that we were leading, say, you know, 3500 BC. And that's so amazing. There's this continuity between the emotions and the experiences that our forebears had, as evidenced, say, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the the lamenting over the death of someone who's close to you, we immediately understand that. We immediately can empathize with that because we are the same in certain ways with forebears who are removed from us by millennia.
1: You extend the, the idea, I think, further in, in the next chapter, in chapter seven, when you talk about the value of religious experience, where you you basically say it's not even necessary to understand the content of the of the religious message. You're talking about uh, Aramaic being used, and you don't speak Aramaic, but you've you got the vibe of it, basically, is what you're saying. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. That was, you know, it, it was a similar uh, time frame to the bi- biographical element that you mentioned a moment ago. Is was my my dad's funeral and uh you know in the jewish tradition you have days of mourning in the home and there was a minion of of jewish men you know following the tradition who would come to our home and they would recite the kaddish prayer in aramaic and again i'm not religious i don't follow the dictates of any particular religion but as i was saying early on i feel that I'm a deeply spiritual person in the sense of trying to understand myself and my reactions and the experiences that I have in 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 the fullest possible terms and as the when these men came I didn't even want a translation of the words that they were saying. I just wanted the sounds. I wanted the rhythms. I wanted to feel the patterns and sort of feel a connection to a ritual that had been undertaken for a long period of time. Again, we've been lamenting our dead since the earliest times that our species were able to stand up and walk and look around planet Earth and to sort of feel a connection with that long lineage, that was where the comfort was. I didn't need to know what the words meant. I didn't need to know the particular prayer that the words were articulating in this ancient tongue. Rather, I just wanted to feel the connection. And that, to me, as I was the point to make in the book is, that is a role of religion. The world's religions, many of them are quite old. It's an obvious fact, but it's a deep fact, because by virtue of them being old— They have been practiced by generation upon generation, and regardless of whether you want to buy into the specific details, the literal interpretation of what the religion may be saying, you can feel a connection to generation upon generation by engaging in certain of those rituals, and certainly the ritual of mourning is one in which I found it deeply comforting to engage in in that particular way.
1: Did that prompt a, a shift in viewpoint then, or is that something you've realized later? Because you said that maybe it was in your 20s you went, you had a, a religious experience that felt coercive. You didn't feel very good at participating in a particular organized religious experience, whereas what you've just said is the complete opposite. It's very comforting.
2: Yeah, it, um, it definitely was a shift. And, you know, I think you need to be fluid in your perspective about things in the world, as you go through life and have different experiences. And when I was in my 20s, I went on a a trip. I was going to school in Oxford. I went on a trip during one of the breaks to Israel. And to make a long story short, this rabbi found me and tried to bring me more fully into the religious fold. And out of deference to him, I undertook certain religious practices you know it's called the tefillin you know you wrap your head in leather with a little box on your forehead i'd never done it before and it made me deeply uncomfortable to undertake this ritual when i didn't have any belief in the religion itself and i just sort of felt under a, a kind of coercion by by this rabbi and when that concluded i left and i said i'm finished with this i do not want to be part of this Kind of an activity. It just feels not aligned with my DNA, with my view of the world. And so I did have a sense of wanting to put it further away from me, sort of this religious tradition. And and, and you know, somewhat later on, when my, when my dad died, um, it brought me back, uh, not in terms of being involved. I don't go to temple. I, I don't celebrate the high holidays. But in terms of the recognition that I As an individual, I'm part of a long lineage, and that lineage stretches way back in a particular tradition, and there can be comfort at times in feeling that lineage more fully. And my own view is, life's hard, and you do whatever's necessary to sort of cope with situations, and by feeling part of a heritage, it can help you to cope, or at least help me to cope with the loss of my father.
1: I think in in the next chapter, you, you formalise that a little bit more because you quote the lyricist Yip Harburg talking about um Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And the quote is that words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling, but a song makes you feel a thought. And then you dwell on that idea of feeling a thought. That's amazing. You know, it's in italics, but it seems to be related to what you've just been saying about going from rejecting the literal content embracing the kind of form without the content you, you, you use that as a way to to further understand y- your father's death as you've already been speaking about but is it a way you know have you allowed your personal life into your physics work more I think you said that you haven't but it, in your teaching maybe um from what you've said I'd be very surprised if you told a young grad student you have to think about physics all day long and nothing else. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yes, I guess in that sense, it certainly has uh, infiltrated. But, but, the, but the point that you're making and, and the quote that you make reference to is, I think, one that summarizes my um, ever more refined view of what truth is. There was a time, and some of my colleagues still feel this way, that I viewed science as the really only pathway toward truth that that you could trust. Science would give you predictions about replicable experiments in the world, and by carrying out those experiments, you could confirm the predictions and you could confirm the truth that science had revealed. And all that's true, all that's good, all that's powerful, but truth is a much more nuanced idea than that. Those are the objective truths. Those are the truths that are out there in the world, available to everybody with the right equipment and the right mathematical training. But equally important are inner truths, the truths that are not available to everybody, the truths that can vary from person to person, the truths, in essence, going to that quote now, that you can feel, that you can sense, But you might not even be able to articulate. Again, language, natural language is how we communicate. And it evolved as we were talking before so that we could better hold together as these social groups. Mathematics, another language that we developed in order to have a precise way of articulating the patterns of reality, the patterns of the world, the motions of the planets, the motions of rocks or spears when we throw them, right? So that's another powerful language for articulating truth. But just because we have languages that are good at articulating truths, it doesn't mean that all truths are necessarily amenable to being expressed in this particular form. And certainly in that chapter, I was emphasizing that there are certain kind of creative works, be they in music, be they in sculpture, be they in dance, be they in film, be they in anything that reaches us perhaps in a way that isn't amenable to articulation in language, and yet we can feel the truths within them. I can feel the truth of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. If you ask me to explain it in words, I'd be like, please don't ask me to do that. It will be a poor reflection of the sensation that I know that I can feel. And there are many things in the world that are like that. And I think that's a beautiful thing, that there are qualities of the world. There are truths that only exist. Maybe I can put it this way. The truths of physics are the truths of things that exist independently of us. The sun has its processes. The earth has its motion independently of whether or not we understand it. Those kind of truths are out there. But the beauty of the other kind of truths, the inner world, these are truths that simply couldn't exist without us. And it's so powerful that there are qualities of this notion of truth that are dependent on us, fully dependent upon us. And those are the truths that I think you can get at for some with a spiritual practice or maybe even with a codified religious practice. Practice or that you can get at through creative expression. And that's why these chapters in the book to me are special. They're they're vital because they are an important part of the story that needs to be told in addition to the general relativity and the quantum mechanics and the objective qualities of the world. And blending these stories together is to me what kind of makes life worth living
1: the the last couple of chapters or the chapters 9 and 10 the penultimate pair of chapters um talk about the ultimate fate of thought and how what entropy means for thinking in the far future um what you've just said actually is a little bit of a pessimistic note isn't it because you have to know physics and prove physics theorems to live on in the far future whereas your own personal ineffable truths are going to just die when your body dies. Um, but can, can you talk about a little bit about um, how a thinking being could get around the problem of ever-increasing entropy? Because you do discuss how to solve entropy in a way for thought.
2: Yes, so I uh, happy to do that, but just to the idea of the ineffable personal truth disintegrating when you die, and yes, that can be bleak, but only if you're valuing them by their longevity. And the measure of value shouldn't be longevity, sort of to go back to our early part of the conversation, my sort of Starbucks moment, if you will. The value of these truths is what they do for you here, what they do for you now, what they do for your grasp of who you are, and the ability of these truths to help you understand how you got here and what it is what it means to be a human being that lacks free will but nevertheless can have creative expression so that's where these truths really matter not by virtue of their longevity so that takes the focus off the fact that they do disintegrate and and go away but nevertheless to go to your question it is the case as we discussed early on that if you view thought as a physical process which it is every thought you have is some kind of physical process taking place inside of your brain, then it is governed by this tendency, this overwhelming tendency, articulated by the second law of thermodynamics, which is this overarching drive toward disorder. And so what Freeman Dyson, actually, who passed away just a little while ago, realized first, there's a point in the cosmos when it appears that the universe won't be able to absorb the entropic waste generated by the process of thought, which means that thought itself would necessarily come to an end. Now, he gave a possible way around that, where if a thinking being was to hibernate for long stretches of time, that would allow them to discard their entropy arbitrarily slowly without building up more entropy because they wouldn't be thinking while they were excreting this entropic waste. And so Dyson gave a mathematical argument which showed that if the thinking being were to hibernate for a long stretch of time, wake up, think for a little bit, go back to sleep, allow the entropy to slowly drift away, wake up again, have a few more thoughts. If the periods of hibernation were longer and longer and done in the right way, the thinking being might be able to think forever. Now, Dyson was writing about these ideas in sort of the 70s or 80s, and our understanding of the cosmos has developed since then, and the uh, accelerated expansion of the universe discovered in 1998 and given the Nobel Prize in 2011 surprisingly has an impact on this argument because the fact that we now know that space is not only expanding but speeding up in its expansion, it turns out that that yields a little additional heat, a little additional temperature to space. And that little extra heat thwarts Dyson's argument, as it turns out. So based on our current observations of the expansion of the universe, we can actually make a statement about the uh, almost uh, the unlikely nature of a thinking being being able to think forever. Who would have thought there's a connection between the ability to cogitate and the expansion rate of space? But as I described in that chapter, there is a connection, and that connection yields a conclusion that seems to suggest that thinking cannot persist forever.
1: Hmm. Yeah, heavy stuff. And and you, you also talk about the idea of, of the Boltzmann brain, which I, I think I'm right in saying is that if you wait long enough, particles just by random motion will just get into the configuration of being a brain if, if you just wait long enough. Is that right? Um, But you call that an epistemological quagmire because I think that means that we can't tell if we are already in that situation or not.
2: Yeah, uh, toward the end of the book, I allow ideas to go as far as they possibly can go. And I show that when you blend quantum mechanics with the possibility that time may go on forever, then you come to some curious conclusions because in quantum mechanics, any process... That has a that isn't ruled out by, say, physics will have a non-zero chance of occurring, and however small that chance may be, if you've got an eternity for that chance to possibly take place, then there's a virtual certainty that that process will happen, however unlikely it may be. You know, you want to throw, you know, double zero a hundred times in a row at a casino. You throw that that little white ball into that roulette wheel enough times and it will happen. Now we know it's unlikely, but that's over ordinary timescales. Similarly to imagine particles in the void, just wafting around and coalescing into a structure like a brain, that is a highly unlikely process to happen. But if you have an eternity together with quantum mechanics, you can argue quite convincingly that sooner or later it will occur. Now, why am I focusing upon a brain forming in the void? Other things could form a chunk of blue cheese could form in the void too. But the interesting thing about a brain is it allows a resurrection of thought. If thought died out, say, 10 to the 50 years after the Big Bang, well, now if you wait long enough, a thinking being can reappear and come on the scene. And the point that you're making about our own cogitation and where it takes place is indeed one of the points that I make and one of the points that physicists contemplate, because if you wait for a near eternity, then you'll have nearly, well, in fact, an infinite number of these brains occurring in the void. Whereas the number of brains that form in the usual way that we imagine, you know, the sun formed, the earth formed, Darwinian selection, allowed brains to emerge, only a finite number of brains will form in that way. So if you ask yourself, where is your thinking taking place right now? The answer that you're kind of led to by the odds is, well, there's a brain floating in outer space that happened to come together in just the right configuration to make that brain think that it's having the thoughts That it's having right now. My brain, let me be personal about it. My brain only has the sensations that it does because of the arrangement of my particles. I think I'm talking to you. I think we're having an interview only because my particles are arranged in a collection that gives me those sensations. And if a brain in the void were to come together with a particulate arrangement identical to that of my brain right now, that brain out in space will be having exactly the same sensations that I am. And that brain should say to itself, wait, where am I? Am I having an interview? No, I'm actually floating in in the void and I just came together randomly without any of my memories being real. All of the memories that that brain has are simply a reflection of the arrangement of the particles, not of past experience. And that's the epistemological quagmire. If you are a brain floating in the void, then you can't trust any of your memories of being real. You can't trust, be personal about it. I can't trust that I ever took quantum mechanics or general relativity or any of the data that I thought I saw confirming those theories. It's all made up. It's all just sensations created by my particles coalescing a moment ago in the void. And the kicker is I can't even trust the conclusion that quantum mechanics and eternity allow for brains to form in the void. The very start Of the conversation, this part of the conversation that we're having. So I've now undercut rationality, I've undercut logical thinking, and therefore the whole structure collapses. And that's the epistemological quagmire. So most of us physicists view this possibility of Boltzmann brains not as a real possibility. We don't sort of look at it as thought being resurrected, we look at it as a diagnostic. If our theories allow for Boltzmann brains to form, we question our theories. We wonder if our theories may need a refinement. And we are in search of theories that don't allow these Boltzmann brains to form because those are the theories that won't have this epistemological quagmire. So it's really a mathematical diagnostical, diagnostic tool that we use today. It's not as though I think many physicists envision these brains actually forming, even though... Our laws suggest that they could.
1: It depends whether the universe is infinite or not, or whether time is infinite or not, right?
2: That's a vital part of it. If, if time doesn't go on for uh, nearly an eternity, there simply won't be enough time for these brains to form. That's one way out. People suggest maybe our reaction to Boltzmann brains is we should conclude that the universe will have a finite lifetime. Period. End of story. It just ends. It dies long before Boltzmann brains could form. That is one possibility. There are other possibilities, too, that people are pursuing, but you can see our approach is to try to use this as a tool to guide our theory as opposed to something that we are literally predicting will happen in the future.
1: I just want to go back to the point where you were talking about feeling a thought. At, at that point in the book, you, you say that your dad didn't have a much formal education. He dropped out of high school. What was it like for you being the kind of kid who needed to go with a letter to get advanced maths, you know, and and, and went on to do a PhD and so on coming from that background? Was it difficult interpersonally or, or what was that like?
2: No, my dad was was deeply personal and deeply curious so we would get into long conversations about all of these ideas, even though he didn't have the the technical training to follow it, and uh, his education was really self-made, as I described in the book. He liked to call himself an S.P.H.D., which stood for Seward Park High School Dropout. So that was his version of the academic uh, markings. But he was so excited to hear about even the research I was doing in string theory, I remember I came home from graduate school over one spring break. I came back from Oxford. I'm doing these calculations of extra dimensional spaces and the symmetries that they might have and how that would affect the particles. And I would tell him about this stuff and he could have heard about it for hours. So, so the fact that he didn't have formal education hardly made a difference in the way that we, we dealt with each other on a personal level.
1: Was it easy for you to go on to formal education at a high level, given that, that it wasn't something that was in the air at home? Well, it
2: was in the air.
1: Uh, it wasn't
2: within my parents' background. Mm-hmm. So my mother didn't go to uh, college. My dad dropped out of high school. But they both valued education above everything else. Mm-hmm. So so that culture, the culture of education was was infused in everything, even though neither of my parents had followed that trajectory. And, and frankly, as I'm sitting here, I realized it never even like none of us kids ever said, well, if education's so important, like, why didn't you guys do it? It, it didn't occur to us. It was just part of the fabric of how we live that education was vital. And on that trajectory, I was, I was propelled and I just kept going.
1: You were given an assignment when you were uh, in grade school, I think, to write about somebody interesting, and you chose to write about your dad. And another really poignant memory was that he—you asked him about why he chose music because he was a was he—he was a a composer.
2: Composer, yes.
1: Um, Can Can you say a bit about?
2: Yeah, I remember that it was a it was a third grade assignment mm-hmm. and you know it was to just to interview somebody to learn about their job their work and write a little report on it so sure I dad was the easiest one It was kind of the easy way out so I I interviewed him and so I said Look, so why do you do what you do why do you write music and and he his answer was uh, to keep away the loneliness mm-hmm. and and as I described in the book he quickly transitioned to that's a kind of dark tone for a third grade report. <laughs> so he quickly transitioned to uh, a, a more straightforward response. But it really stuck with me. I didn't fully understand it at the time, but you know, as I got older, I did. Living life on Earth can be a lonely prospect, even if you're with people. In the end, we are imprisoned within our own unique conscious experience, and that's both beautiful and terrifying. And at times it was terrifying for my dad and music for him provided a kind of connection both to the wider world. It provided a connection to the cosmos, just this kind of creative expression, allowing him to feel that he was going beyond the limitations of, of his own conscious self. So, so for me, the memory is an important one. It's a vital one. And it allows me now to have even a more refined relationship with my father, even though he's been dead for 30 years, because I can listen to his music. And, I mean, to go back to the Yip Harburg quote, when I listen to my dad's music, I do feel his thoughts in a way that it'd be tough for me to really articulate in any detail, but it gives me an experience of him even at different moments in his life when the music was written at different moments and allows me to feel him making his way in the world in a way that he and I never spoke about. I mean, he died when I was 22, 23, and we didn't have any big heart-to-heart conversations of that where I— deeply went over his life and, you know, it just never happened, but I, I can kind of do it now in a different way.
1: You've already talked about um, the sort of time dependent meaning of life uh, and, and the, the fact that life, it doesn't go on forever is what gives it meaning. You describe a thought experiment where I think you were giving a public debate uh, and, and somebody in the audience asked you about they they responded to you being quite reductive in, in what you were saying back then and could you say a bit about do you, do you know what i'm referring to i do yeah. i
2: do yeah there was an event where there was a there was an off-broadway show in new york about planet earth getting hit by an asteroid and everybody dying and the show was about how the characters deal with this impending demise And the producers called me up and said, would you do a talk back with the audience on stage after one of these performances? And you can suggest somebody that you might be in conversation with. So I suggested my brother, who is um, a Hare Krishna devotee, a deep thinker, but comes at the world from a completely different perspective. So we had this conversation on stage about what the end of life on earth would mean to inhabitants who realized that the end was near and i at that time was basically saying look you know as far as the wider cosmos is concerned the end of earth just won't matter okay we're like this little tiny speck floating in space and if we get hit by an asteroid and life gets wiped out yeah i'd be sad but that's it we'd all be gone and i was very kind of harsh and rigid i suspect in the way i was describing that it was a long time ago and it was partly in in response to my brother being all in, in kind of ethereal in his discussion. The more ethereal he became, the like the more stridently, you know, physicalist I became. And and yes, you're right. There's a woman at the end who came up to me, and she was she kind of felt. She said, "Look, I think you're you're not seeing the full story." She said, "Like, what would matter to you more, right? To learn that you're going to die, you know, or to learn, you know, that all." Of life will die. I mean, all of life would die, would really change your perspective in a different way. And as I began to think about it, really, she was right. Because everything I was doing at the time was meant to be part of giving the next generation deeper insights into physics or into mathematics. But there, if there wasn't a next generation, if it was really all going to end, where would the motivation come from to say, do physics or to write a book or to have a family? And, and, and it really helped to uh, give me a more nuanced perspective on what matters and, and to recognize that descendants, the fact that the species will go on, is something that implicitly many of us do hold as part of our worldview and part of how we find value. And then in the book, to recognize that while an asteroid may not be slamming into Earth tomorrow on larger timescales... There is an asteroid, so to speak, the disintegration of everything, every material structure. So we all do face that impending end. The end of all descendants is in our future, our far future. Mm -hmm. But however artificial it might sound to imagine, you know, end of life from an asteroid hitting Earth, end of life in the cosmos is not artificial. It's something, as I describe in the book, that is very likely to be real.
1: You would, Your position is that we're lucky to be alive at this time in history. Is that related to the fact that after after it's no longer possible for anything to happen, we couldn't have lived then anyway, could we? So there's a kind of uh, anthropocentric luck that we're here now. But I think you'll, you say that we're lucky to be around this early in cosmic time. Is that right?
2: Yeah. In fact, I would even say it somewhat more broadly, which I think summarizes my whole perspective on this issue of the death of the individual and the death of the species, which is I see human life as part of this long lineage that stretches back to the Big Bang. And it's the result of an innumerable collection of quantum processes playing out over cosmic history, each of which could have turned out that way instead of this way, yielding a present in which we wouldn't be here. So in a sense, against astounding odds, we are here. And that gives me a deep sense of gratitude for the mere fact of existence. But then everything that we're talking about plays into allowing me to take that one giant step further, which is it's not just that we're here. It's that we, by virtue of evolutionary processes, are so highly... Configured so exquisitely ordered that our collection of particles can do things we can create beauty we can ask the kinds of questions that we 've been talking about we can illuminate mystery by examining the world and coming out with explanations and and understandings and and the fact that we can do that from whatever from from Shakespeare writing King Lear or or Julius Caesar from from, you know, from Rodin sculpting the Burgers of Calais, from, from Brahms writing the, the Fourth Symphony. I mean, the fact that we can do this, mere collections of particles governed by physical law, that just fills me with this sense of reverence, gratitude and, and reverence and, and deep thanks. And that, to me, is enough. That, to me, is enough to have a sense of value, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose— even in the face of our fleeting existence.
1: Well, speaking of deep thanks, Brian Green, thank you very much for speaking today about your 2020 book, Until the End of Time, Mind Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you.
2: enjoyed this. Okay.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.